Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving uh, such a worm as I. Thank you that uh, you revealed to me and to the people here the, the message and the beauty of the gospel, and you allowed us to receive it, receive it by faith. And uh, thank you that your spirit has done that work within us. And Lord, now we want to consider tonight how we can maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace as we consider uh, the church at Corinth who is struggling with division. And we want to be able to see ourselves and to be able to understand the scriptures for what they are, remove from us the hostility that we naturally have towards the scriptures and help us to understand it as true and to see the significance of it and then to apply it to our lives. pray for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen. The focus of our study tonight, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, fits inside the larger context of what Paul is addressing. He's responding to reports from Chloe's household that there is division in the church, that people are taking sides on which speaker is more eloquent, which speaker is more important. Paul, Apollos, Peter, Christ. In chapter 1, Paul responded by saying, there must not be any divisions among you because there is no division in the person of Jesus Christ. It doesn't make sense for Christ to be divided and so it also doesn't make sense for His body, the church, to be divided. So instead, we must all agree. Now, again, we, we qualified that and recognize that Paul's not making universal statements saying that every, we must agree on every single thing. What he's saying is that we must not be divided over non-essential issues. By virtue of our union with Christ, we, we are united together. And so specifically, this union ought to be around the message of the gospel. And so that's where Paul has now turned the corner and focused our attention so that we see that. This message of the gospel is foolishness to the world, we saw last time. But they see, uh, but what they see as foolishness is actually God's wisdom. And it's what we believe. It's the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the message of the gospel. But not only is this message foolish to the world, but also the recipients of the gospel are also considered as foolish by the world. And in a sense, we are, right? That's what the text said. God designed it that way, that He chose not many mighty, not many of noble birth, not many wise. So the, the fact is that those who come to Christ are, generally speaking, foolish, weak, politically, and, and poor. That's us. God has proclaimed the gospel to nobodies like you and me, people who will die and be forgotten in a hundred years from now or sooner. And He chose this foolish message, the cross, and foolish people, you and me, so that none of us could boast in ourselves. None of us could boast in, in this ladder that we built up to God. Like we accomplished our right standing with God. You see, instead, God reached down to us who were the nothings of the world, and He did it through a foolish message across. It's not a triumphant one when you hear about it in those terms that a Messiah actually dies. And in the end, God gets all the glory. So that, as we saw last time, no one can boast except in the Lord. 
Well, now Paul continues to explain this kind of paradoxical nature of the gospel in chapter 2 by showing that Paul uh, is going to use a method of delivery that is also seen as foolish. To the world, especially the Corinthian world, they're looking at how Paul's speaking and saying, not really up to par when it comes to oratory skills. Not done with the, the most crafty of speeches. And Paul will conclude this chapter by showing how all this is possible. I mean, how is it? We know why God does it in order to get glory for Himself. But how is it possible that God can take a message that by the world standard is foolish, give it to, by the, to people who by the world standard are foolish, and do it through a method that is by the world standard foolish? How could God possibly do this? How does He cause this to happen? How can we come into a right standing with God? And the answer will be here at the end of chapter 2. So let me read our text for us. And you follow along in your Bible as I read. This is the Word of God. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. Yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Here in chapter 2, we see that the wisdom of God is given to the people of God by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. So we receive God's wisdom. That's, you saw that in verse 7. We speak God's wisdom in, the, in a mystery. And this wisdom is most clearly seen in the person of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But I think uh, Paul's talking about more than just that message. Certainly that message is at the center of what the whole Word of God is all about. It, everything points towards Christ. And so this Word of God is primarily Christ crucified. But I think it includes more than that. I think it includes the Scriptures here. And we'll see this as we get to verses 10 through 16. 
So we receive the wisdom of God through the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit transfers it up transfers it to us through two processes that we'll talk about and he does that by means of the word of God so let's first kind of continue where we left off because what we saw last time was uh, in verses 18 through 31 that there was a foolish message Jesus Christ crucified given to a bunch of nobodies, people who were not wise by human standards, not mighty, not rich. Um, so here's the third part of it. This third part of it is that the method of delivery for the gospel is folly to the world. So it's not just the message and it's not just the recipients, it's also the method that seems to the world to be foolish because if they had their way with it, they would take this message and craft it in a different way so that it would be more palatable, a little bit easier to receive, so that we don't focus so much maybe on the cross part, we focus more on the, the triumphing part. See, what they're looking for is rhetorical skill, physical strength, the ability to persuade, and instead what we find is the weakness of Paul's method. The weakness, put that in quotations, quotation marks, because um, because this is um, the opposite of that, right? There's there's actually strength in preaching the gospel. And here's how Paul explains it in verse one: I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom. So, what would be the opposite of superiority of speech and wisdom? What is it? Inferiority inferiority of speech and wisdom. So that's how I came to you. See, by, by term, in terms of you have all these philosophers that are hanging out at Corinth. This is kind of the hub of, of the Roman world. They're all coming here to, to show off their oratory skills. And Paul comes in with this weak method. He, he comes with an inferior kind of speech and wisdom. And then in verse 3 he says, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. If you go back to Acts, you can find out what he was doing before this. In chapter 16, he was in Philippi. What happened to him in Philippi? He was what? He was beaten and then put into prison. Remember, the Philippian jailer comes to Christ at the end of that and they try to send them away. And Paul's like, you're not sending us away. Send, the, send, the, uh, send your leaders down to us. They're going to they're escort us out. And then he goes to... Um, Thessalonica and Berea, Berea and Athens and all three of those places he's rejected as well. So you have these four cities before he comes to Corinth to spend a year and a half with them and he's, he's physically worn out. Okay? He has been beaten in the recent past. And apparently he was unimpressive to look at, unimpressive to listen to. And so he likely comes with, verse 3, fear and much trembling. Probably fear because of the weight of what he had to share with them. That his, as he speaks, he's not very polished. Especially in comparison to the speakers of Corinth, right? The people who were outside in the Colosseums and, and, and so on that were basically putting on a show with their ability to speak. Their bombastic and persuasive methods 
as they spoke and, and taught philosophy, Paul comes and says, I don't have all those skills. And I came to you in weakness. Verse 4, he says, not in persuasive words of wisdom. So he's not able to, to, to be able to guarantee a response either. He simply has a responsibility to be the herald and as weak and as frail as he is, he presents the message. And perhaps you found yourself in a similar situation when you're trying to explain the gospel to someone or trying to teach a class or something and you just feel, I am so inadequate for this task. I don't know what the right words to say. I don't know how to answer their questions. And this is Paul. He's saying, I'm coming. I don't have all the persuasive words and the ability to, to, to wow people with my speech and my ability. But there is a great value in this weak method. There's great value in this weak method. The, uh, the method of a modest and restrained and a kind of unassuming uh, delivery of the gospel. And we see that in verse 5. So that, so I, I did not come, verse 4, in persuasive words of wisdom. Verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Just like the fact that the, the message itself is not something that can be found by wise people by just developing wise and religious people just by developing their own ideas. It's a foolish message. It's one that has to be revealed to a person. In the same way, the, the method of delivery is not very bombastic or, or beautiful, flowery. Instead, it's restrained, unassuming. And the result is that genuine faith can spring up, can sprout up from the soil of a weak delivery. So that the Spirit can work, right? You see that at the end of verse 4 it says, but in the demonstration of spirit and in power. So while it seems weak, when you compare it to all the speaking abilities of the Corinthians and, and a lot of these uh, professionals who are coming through, Paul's saying, in comparison to them, it's weak. But, but actually, it's great, with great power, isn't it? Because the spirit is driving it. The spirit is behind it. Now, we might look at this and say, well, okay, so basically, when I get up to speak, or whenever I get have to explain the gospel to someone, I don't need to use logic, human reasoning, uh, human reasoning, no, any kind of reasoning, okay? I don't need to use logic or reasoning. I don't even have to consider what I'm going to say. I'll just get up there and say stuff and the, the Holy Spirit will be powerful in it. That's not the point. Okay, don't, don't hear me say that we shouldn't try to engage the person's mind and use, um, you know, some of the things that we've learned from speech class to be able to get our point across. But the point here is that we cannot rely on those things. If we are saying, I can get this message so polished up and, and this delivery so perfect that it will guarantee a response. See, when we start uh, depending on our method over the content of the method, that is the Spirit and the, and the, the nature of the Gospel, then, then we do have no power. Because if anyone is going to come to genuine faith, God is the one who has to do the work. 
they have to believe the Scriptures. They have to accept the Gospel. And God graciously uses us even in our frailties when we explain the Gospel. So, so still work towards excellence and trying to explain the Gospel. Still try to keep learning how to do it better, how to answer questions better. Absolutely. But don't depend on your delivery to be kind of like the, the, the driving force behind what you do or the kind of the nail in the coffin to get them to, to respond. And behind all this, I think the point of these first five verses is that Paul made God's focus his focus. Notice verse 1, what he was proclaiming. At the end of the verse it says, I was proclaiming to you the testimony of God. So the message of God. In verse 2, I determined to know nothing about you. Uh, I, I determined to know nothing among you, excuse me, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So I could have spent all my time on trying to figure out how to arrange this and make it more palatable for you. But you know what I focus on? I want to focus on what are the depths of the gospel. Who is Christ? What has He done? What does it mean for my salvation? I want to focus my attention on what the truth is. Not so much on the delivery of the truth. And what happens is this kind of focus, when we focus on Christ, anything, nothing but Christ, is that it invites the power of God. At the end of verse 4 it says, I came to you in de- the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So if the focus were on delivery, logic, the ability to grip the audience, then that's what people would walk away with. Wow, did you see how he kind of he had me going over this way and then he turned it the last second and man, he just had my emotions. No, they walk away saying, nothing special about that delivery, but wow, that's the power of God that was being taught. When a person accepts the gospel, even in spite of a less than stellar delivery, the glory goes to God. So do you see what's going on here? God's putting a higher value on the knowledge and the proclamation of Christ than on the superiority of speech. So our knowledge and our proclamation of Christ is more important than our superiority of speech. And I think Paul is following suit. So we have a foolish message received by nobodies and presented in a foolish way. But how can this work? How can God use a message about a dead Messiah given to common people who will die and be forgotten and delivered through a message that is less than persuasive on the surface. How can God do this? Before we see the answer to that in verses 10 through 16, we first need to see the wisdom of God is rejected by the world. The wisdom of God, uh, the wisdom of the gospel, excuse me, is rejected by the world. In verse 6, Paul begins by saying that we can speak this message to the spiritually mature and it will make sense to them. We do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Makes sense. We've already seen this, that, that, that what seems to be foolishness to the world is actually the wisdom of God. And the, the spiritual man actually can accept that. We'll see that later in the text as well. But then he moves in, in, in verse 8 and says, the same message preached in the same way to 
self-righteous religious people, the intellectuals of Christ's day, they don't understand. Look at verse 8. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. They don't understand it. Same message, delivered in the same way. The difference is, these people don't understand it. The reason we don't know they don't understand it is because the end of verse 8, they didn't respond to its significance, right? If, if they had understood it, they would not have done what? They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So they didn't understand the message. They might have heard it, but they didn't understand it. So what is this wisdom of God? First, what it is not. In verse 6, we're introduced to this wisdom. We do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. So first, this wisdom is not a wisdom that's derived from or sourced in the religious elites. And when I say religious elites, I mean the self-righteous religious elites and intellectuals of the day. People who are supposed to, to have a, a, the corner on the market of understanding the Word of God missed the boat. They didn't understand it. Now, secondly, we see what it is. What is this wisdom of God? Well, first, it's a predetermined wisdom. In verse 7, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. So it's not something that God came up with as a re reaction, like He started to see that people are going to kill His Son and now I've got to come up with some message that's going to get people to, to have a right relationship with Me. No, this is something that was predetermined before the foundation of the earth. God had determined He was going to save people in this way, by, by His Son dying for their sins. And notice what it does for us at the end of verse 7. To our glory. It's, it's the way that we come to glory, not to to be glorious, but, but to stand uh, before God uh, counted as righteous. So it's a predetermined wisdom. Secondly, it's a mystery. In verse 7 it says, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, a hidden wisdom. So don't think mystery in terms of, in fact, I don't think anywhere in the Scriptures mystery is used like something unable to be understood or something that has to be searched out. But mystery here is the idea of something that was previously hidden in the Old Testament and now is being revealed. Right? Something that in the previous ages was hidden from them. They didn't understand it in the Old Testament. That is, they didn't understand that actually the Son of God would come to earth and die for sinners. They, they knew that the Son of God was going to come to the earth. They didn't understand the part about Him dying. And so now this mystery is revealed and they didn't understand that this is actually going to bring in not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. And that's what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 3. The mystery that the Messiah would be crucified for sinners and bring into the fold both Jews and Gentiles. And then thirdly, this wisdom is a revealed wisdom. Look at verse 9. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Our standing before God, our right standing before God, our coming to glory cannot happen 
when we erect a ladder of our own human reasoning and ingenuity and try to make our way to God, kind of like the Tower of Babel tried to do. They were actually building a monument probably more for their own, um, their own praise. But, but we can't build a ladder to God with our own human reasoning. The only way that we can come to glory, the only way that we can have a right relationship with God is, is if God reveals something to us that was previously hidden. It has to be a revealed wisdom. Notice the last line, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. We can only know God to the extent that He reveals Himself to us. God's wisdom is a predetermined wisdom. It's a mystery. It's a revealed wisdom. So we have a foolish message given to nobodies or fools through a foolish method and somehow we accept it. And we'll someday come to glory. But how is this possible? How is it possible that this all could happen? And the answer is in verses 10 through 16. The wisdom of the gospel is revealed through God's Spirit. The wisdom of the gospel is revealed through God's Spirit. We can only know about God if God chooses to reveal Himself to us. So the latter method doesn't work. We can't search out God with our and build up our mountain of human reasoning and make our way to God. The only way that we can know about God is if God first chooses to reveal Himself to us. So, for example, if God chose to remain silent about Himself, if God never, uh, if God never spoke, if God never wrote anything down about who He is and what He expects of us and, and, and what He's like, if He never did that, all that we would know about God is what? What we see in creation, right? What we call general revelation. So, can anyone get saved through general revelation? Looking at the stars, looking at the trees. No, they know God exists and it's enough to condemn them. But no one can get saved by looking at general revelation. That is, God's clear revelation of Himself in creation. Everybody knows that God exists. But what happens if God didn't speak? You see, God is the one who has to reveal Himself to us if we're going to know anything about Him, if we're going to know how we can come to Him. We can't imagine how we come to God if God doesn't reveal Himself to us. God first has to communicate with us. And that's why He sent us His Holy Spirit. He has chosen to reveal what He wants us to know through His Spirit. And there are two primary ways that the Holy Spirit gets the message of God from the mind of God to the heart of man. Two ways. Two primary ways. These are not the only ways, but the two primary ways. Number one, through inspiration. Inspiration. I guess I didn't put these subpoints in here, so I'll have to give these to you. The Holy Spirit is the agent of God's revelation in verse 10. The Holy Spirit is the agent of God's revelation. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So to us, God has revealed this mystery, this hidden wisdom that we didn't formally know until God spoke 
And he did that, notice verse 10, through the Spirit. And the reason that's important is because the Spirit is the one who searches all things. Not that he's trying to find something out, but, but, in, but he's, he's searching all things in order to reveal them. So the Spirit is the agent of God's revelation. Secondly, the Spirit of God knows the mind of God. Verse 11. The Spirit of God knows the mind of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So, let's just think about you, for example. Who knows the deepest secrets of your life? Okay, let's, let's say, which human being living on the earth right now knows the deepest secrets of your life? Who is it that knows your deepest motivation? Which person that lives on this earth knows your deepest motivation and your deepest secret? Well, the text tells us, really in the form of a question, for who among men knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of man? So who is it? It's our spirit, isn't it? Our own individual spirit is the only one who knows our deepest secrets, our deepest motivations. So gather up all the people that know you best and line them up next to you. Who's going to get the highest score on a quiz about yourself and your motives? Right? Your individual small s spirit knows you best. So you are going to get the best score on that quiz. And the point here that I think Paul's making is, yes, that. Only someone who is that person can know that person. He's going to make that connection with the Spirit and God. But also... We can't know your inner secrets and motivations unless you reveal them to us. Right? So, here's the analogy. Look at the second part of verse 11. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So, who is it that actually knows the mind of God? And the answer from the text is, the Spirit of God. So if we're going to know anything about God, then we need the Spirit to actually reveal to us what's in God's mind. Okay? Now what I'm talking about, and I'm going to clarify this later as well, because we're going to say you know, we have the mind of Christ. Not everything that's in God's mind, but what He wants us to know. Okay? So that's what we're talking about. Anything that you have... In your hands, right? This scripture that you have in your hand could not come to you unless the Spirit of God knew the mind of God and wrote down the words of God. And that's inspiration. That is, that the Holy Spirit moved the writers of Scripture along so that their words were inspired. That is, that they were divinely authenticated as truth, as from God Himself. Verses 12 and 13, we see that the Spirit of God has gifted us with the revelation of God. The Spirit of God has gifted us with the revelation of God. So the Spirit is the agent of God's revelation. He knows the mind of God and He's given us the revelation of God. Verse 12 says, We have not received the Spirit of the world. So if you wanted to personify the world, you know, just picture a person who's actually the world. 
We didn't receive the spirit that was in the world in order to understand these things. You could kind of see the religious elites and all these ones who are trying to work towards um, human wisdom. And they kind of have received the spirit of the world. We have instead received the spirit of God. That's what verse 12 says. And so that when we have the scriptures in front of us, we can be confident that we are actually hearing from God. We're actually getting into the mind of God deeper than we can in His general revelation, right? To the extent that He has explained Himself in the Scriptures, we can know what's in God's mind. Again, we can't know all that's in God's mind. But to the extent that He has explained Himself, we can. Look at verse 13. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So the Spirit inscripturated the mind of God so that we could be confident that what we believe is from God and what we teach is from God. This is inspiration. That the, the sacred writings of the Scripture are divinely trustworthy. So, how is it that God takes a foolish message, gives it to foolish people through a foolish method? Well, first, does it through the Holy Spirit by inspiring. He first writes down what He wants us to know. Secondly, the Holy Spirit illumines the child of God. He, he illumines our minds. This is an ongoing process that we continually need. Now, there is initial illumination that happens when we come to Christ. We have to be able to see the Scriptures as true. In fact, let me just give you a a definition of of illumination. Illumination is the Holy Spirit's causing the believer to grasp the significance of the Scripture and remove the hostility that we naturally have toward the Scripture. When I say naturally, I mean in our sin nature. You know, our sin nature doesn't go away when we get saved. It it becomes uh, becomes more holy, okay, but, but it doesn't go away. So we still have the sin nature that is whether we believe it or not, or, or whether we like to think it or, of it or not, is actually hostile towards the Scriptures. We, we want to resist the Scriptures. And so what the Spirit does is He comes and He, he illumines our mind. He, he removes the hostility that we have and He helps us to see the significance. Now, there's a difference between meaning and significance. Any non-Christian scholar can understand the meaning of the text. Right? That's, that's called Interpretation. Right? You could take any text, outside of Scripture even, and you could understand, the, you could interpret that text and understand the meaning of what the author was writing. Right? You do this every day when you read the newspaper or a news article or some kind of article from Facebook, whatever. You're actually working to interpret the text. We'll take some time to talk about that in Sunday school in the next several weeks. So anybody can do that. But what we're talking about is actually to understand the significance. Only believers can understand the significance of the text and accept it as true. See, a a godless scholar can look at this text and he can understand what the main point of the text is. But he doesn't believe it as true and he doesn't see the significance of it for his life and for his obedience, right? Isn't that Paul's point in verse 14? 
But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. What are the things of the Spirit of God? Well, they're the writings of Scripture. They're the message of the Gospel. He cannot accept them, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. However, the one who is spiritual in verse 15 is able to understand the Scriptures. He is able to understand the significance of the Scriptures. The contrast between a person who understands the significance of the Scriptures and who doesn't understand the Scriptures, what's the difference between those two people? One has the Holy Spirit and one doesn't. Look at verse 15. But he who is spiritual, okay, in that word spiritual, you should see the idea of Holy Spirit. Okay, The one who has the Holy Spirit appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Why is the Scripture so hard to comprehend and embrace? Why, for, for the natural man, the, the non-Christian, is it so hard to embrace? It's because he is totally depraved. He sees the Scripture as nonsense. He can't appreciate its significance. But the, and so here's, here's what kind of contrast you have. The natural man looks at the things of God, spiritual things, and he says foolishness. I don't understand any of that. That is, I don't understand the significance of that. Why would people give their lives for this? But here, here's, the, here's the difference. In verse 15, we can actually look at evil and we can understand it to the, to the extent that we understand the depths of it. We understand how terrible it is. See, they look at spiritual things. They don't understand the depths of spirituality that we have. We can look at their evil and understand the depths of their evil. That's why he says, we can appraise all things. See, they can only appraise their own evil, and even that they can't do well. But we can appraise both good and evil because we have the Holy Spirit within us who teaches us the Word of God. So in verses 15 and 16, we see that the spiritual man has the capacity to evaluate all things. He who is spiritual appraises or evaluates all things. Now, this does not mean that every individual Christian is free from being judged, right? They, they, can, they're not, they don't have to be held to account because they have the Holy Spirit. Hey, he's a Christian. He's got the Holy Spirit, so he can believe whatever he wants. And it's, we, have to, we have to have some kind of a basis, a standard by which we evaluate these things. So that's not what it's saying. It's not saying, you know, because we have the Holy Spirit in us, we can do whatever we want. I mean, consider the letter from Paul to the Corinthians, right? Is he talking to believers or unbelievers? Right, 27 times he says, brethren. So he's talking to believers. And yet, what's he doing here throughout the whole letter? He's appraising them. Right, You're not acting like you have the Spirit in you. We'll talk about that more next week when we get to chapter 3. So he's taking them to task. In fact, it seems like Paul is saying that you are... All of you Corinthians right now are already making judgments that are wrong and they need to be evaluated based on what we know is true. That is the Scripture. 
we need to evaluate truth on the basis of what is objective, which is the Scripture. So he's not saying that we don't have to be held to account, we can believe whatever we want. Instead, Paul is saying that if anyone's going to be a proper appraiser, evaluator of right and wrong, then here's what they cannot do. If we're going to be a proper appraiser, we cannot bypass the mind of God. This is the Corinthians. Okay? They are trying to buy in, they're starting to buy into the world system which says Okay, God has His wisdom. It's kind of foolish. Let's suppress that. Now let's go and get all this other wisdom that we can find. Let's bypass the mind of God. That's what Paul's saying. If you're going to be a proper appraiser of all things, you cannot bypass the mind of God. You cannot bypass the message that is central to the Gospel, which is the message of the crucified Savior. Look at verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. So we have the mind of Christ. What does Paul mean here? Well, he can't mean that you know, Christ's brain is removed and it's transplanted into our brain. So now we have the same kind of thinking that Christ has. Because if that were the case, would we ever need any commands in Scripture or prohibitions? If we had the mind of Christ in that sense? Well, that's not what he's saying, Right? It's not that we're completely perfect in that we know everything Christ knows or we think exactly the way Christ thinks, but rather that we have within us the indwelling Holy Spirit and we now are able to see and grasp what is true. And that is the Scriptures. We can grasp the, the, the truth of God's Word, the significance of God's Word. That's having the mind of Christ. Here's Gordon Fee's summary of this last point. He says, Paul began by insisting that his message was an expression of wisdom, God's own wisdom, revealed by the Spirit. He, in contrast to the natural man, man understands the mind of Christ, just as the Corinthians possessed the Spirit and that same mind of Christ. However, the Corinthians' behavior betrays them, doesn't it? Right? They do have the mind of Christ, and in another sense, they don't. Because the folly of their wisdom, which has turned from God's wisdom to man's wisdom, has now become the center of what they're doing. And so it's expressing itself in quarrels. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. And so instead of bringing together the body of Christ, they're actually tearing the body of Christ apart. The body that was was purchased by the blood of Christ. And so here's the point. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we don't get a special status over and against our unbelieving friends. You know, like we're much higher than you because we have a higher mind of Christ. No, the contrast here in this text is between the believer and the non-believer. So when you see yourself in comparison to an unbeliever, not, not proudly, but you have a greater status. Right? We don't boast in anything that we've done because it's all because of Christ, but, but you do have a higher status than an unbeliever, don't you? Because you can appraise all things. You have the Holy Spirit in you. So, if we're going to pursue unity in the church, 
and avoid divisive behavior, then we need to focus on what the Spirit has clearly revealed to us, and that is the message of the Bible. And the central message of the Bible is that God glorifies Himself through sending His Son to the earth to become a man, to die on the cross for sinners like you and me who didn't deserve to be ransomed. And by His death, we are set free from our slavery to sin. And we're given a seat at the table with God. And this could never happen if it were not for the Holy Spirit who brought the mind of God, the mind of Christ, down to our hearts through the Word. So we can only know God to the extent that He reveals Himself to us. We can't can't work our way up to this great wisdom about God unless God reveals it to us. And here's how God reveals Himself to us. The Holy Spirit works through the Word. All right. Any questions or comments tonight? Norma. Norma. 